Lord, all those thoughts and words that come from you, will you bless them and make them fruitful? And all those words that come not from you, but from our own vanity, will you please forgive? Amen. And so, may I say how wonderful it is to be back with you here and to be able to share in worship with you. And thank you, Mike, for your introduction. I should point out, of course, that not, and this is all so that you feel sorry for me, okay? And more importantly, perhaps that you might pray for me after you're hearing, after you hear what I'm going to say. Not only am I the Archdeacon of Southend, which has 97 parishes in it, I'm also the acting Archdeacon of Chelmsford, which has also about that number of parishes in it, and I'm also standing in for a bishop, because as you probably realise, we have no bishop in this area. He's about to be made the Bishop of Liverpool. And so I couldn't do any of this, of course, without my very, very capable PA, who happens to be sitting here today. <laughs> Because obviously not, on, uh, not only am I under enormous pressure to cover 200-odd parishes in this part of the diocese, but so is Linda. So please keep her in your prayers. You know, uh, when I was coming here last time, I remember the night before having this frightening dream as the anxiety grew about coming to the great St. John's. And the dream went something like this. I was driving my car, approaching St. John's, followed the signs to the artist's car park, and there I was met by the lovely Linda, headphones, clipboard, who brought me in through the artist's entrance and onto the wings of an enormous stage. And then she said, three, two, one, and you're on. And I ran down through this enormous worship band, tripping over cables, trying to avoid TV cameras, and I get to the front of the stage, and I hear, welcome the Bishop of Bradwell. And I thought, no, I'm not the Bishop of Bradwell. And in all that confusion, I completely forgot what I was going to say. So I just said, Jesus loves me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Then there was silence because I couldn't remember anything else. So I thought, I better go. So I went back to the wings. But Linda would have none of that, would not let me leave the stage and sent me back on. So I ran down over the, over the worship band, through the cable, got there, announcement. Here is the Bishop of Bradwell. Huge cheer from the 10,000 members of the congregation. <laughs> See? And I said... I love Jesus. Me too. Me. And I thought, oh, I can't remember what else to say. But it is interesting, isn't it, as we come uh, today, that those two words, Jesus loves me and I love Jesus, sit at the very heart of who we are in Jesus. And they also sit at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. And so, um, welcome to the first of uh, two sermons on the sacraments. And today, we will be looking a bit more closely at baptism. But before we do that, 
let's try and explore for a moment what a sacrament actually is. Now, a good place to start when you're looking for a definition is the Religious Studies GCSE textbook, which defines, and well, uses the traditional definition that says sacraments are defined as an outward sign of an inward blessing, or outward signs combined with prescribed forms of words and regarded as conferring some specific grace, or Sacraments are a way of delivering divine grace through Christian ritual. I would probably also add that sacraments are a way of somehow or other realizing, of uncovering God's love for each and every one of us, God's grace for us, in uncovering them under, under what are quite ordinary things of life, bread, wine, and water. So under the cover of those things, we find something extraordinary about God's love. Now, some churches in the Church of England consider there to be seven sacraments, and they are confirmation, healing, marriage, confession, ordination, baptism, and the Eucharist. But for other churches, and probably in reality most churches, there are only two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, because those are the two that Jesus instructed us to do. Break bread, share wine in remembrance of me, and go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a closer look at the sacrament of baptism. Baptism, as you probably realize, of course, is found extensively in Scripture. Jesus' own baptism by John in the Baptist in the River Jordan is obviously included in all four Gospels. Paul talks of baptism in his letter to the Galatians. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he talks about baptism a great deal including the fact that he baptized the whole household of Stephanus. In the letter to the Romans, Paul links baptismal participation with the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's a very important theme in baptism and a theme that's picked up extensively in baptismal liturgy. Uh, liturgy. And in particular, in the ritual of full immersion. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And Paul goes on to make that similar point in his letter to the Colossians. Baptism lies at the heart of the message of 1 Peter, where the writer explains that baptism provides that point of transition from old life into the new one of confidence and assurance in God, which in turn leads to living a life in imitation of Christ. He goes on to say that eight persons in Noah's time were saved through water, 
And that might seem a slightly strange statement, as it was perhaps the ark that saved and the water that destroyed. But the theme of water is clearly important as he goes to, continues to point out that baptism corresponds to the floodwaters, and it is baptism that now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the Acts of the Apostles, there are numerous references to conversions which generally lead to baptism, all, all involving repentance, which of course is another very important theme that we find running through the baptism service. One of the earliest references to the detail of how baptism should be administered is found in the Didache, a first century um, sort of instruction book for a Christian community. So this is from the Didache. But concerning baptism, thus baptize ye. Having first recited all the precepts, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if thou hast not running water, baptize in some other water. And if thou cannot baptize in cold, in warm water. But if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now that was written only uh, sort of 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But things clearly haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. So let's take a little walk through the baptism service. And so after the initial greeting, we have an introduction um, in common worship that reminds us that to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be born of water and the Spirit and has given us baptism as the sign and seal of new birth. It's very sacramental language talking about signs and seals. It very much goes along with an understanding of it being a sacrament. Here we are washed by the Holy Spirit and made clean. Cleansing is another very important theme of baptism and goes right back to the days of the Old Testament. Here we are clothed in Christ. Some Pauline theology here, which is also found in the next line, dying to sin that we may live his risen life. And then we get some readings from scripture and a sermon, and then we have the presentation of the candidate who is asked a very direct question. Do you wish to be baptized? This question is deeply significant because there is an argument that says for a sacrament to be valid, it has to be willingly accepted by those to whom it's being administered. In the case of infant baptism, for obvious reasons, that question has to be admitted. This is one of those arguments against infant baptism, but we'll come on to that later. Next, the congregation are asked if they'll welcome the candidate into the Christian community. And here again, we find an important aspect of baptism. Baptism is about joining and about being welcomed into the Christian community. And so despite the disruption it can cause, removing baptisms from the main Sunday service and replacing it with a small family group gathered around the font on a Sunday afternoon with no one present from the church community makes little or no theological sense. 
And then we come to the decision, where we have more tough questions for the candidate, or in the case of infant baptism, the parents and godparents, speaking on behalf of the child. They are asked whether they reject, the e reject evil and the devil, and whether they repent of their sins and turn to Christ. Here again, we have repentance. And then we come to the moment that the minister makes the sign of the cross on the forehead of the candidate and basically, symbolically, hands that person over to Christ. So not only are they part of the Christian community gathered in that one particular church, they become part of the church of God. And then tucked away, probably so nobody really even notices it, is an exorcism, words that we probably don't use in our baptism preparation. May Almighty God deliver you from the powers of darkness and restore in you the image of his glory and lead you into the light and obedience of Christ. You know, at this point in the medieval church, candidates would turn 180 degrees, symbolically turning their back on the devil. And now we come to the prayer over the water, where we first give thanks for the gift of water, for the way in which it sustains, refreshes, and cleanses all life. We then are taken back to the creation narrative and to the way the Holy Spirit moved over the waters. It's interesting here that the word, same word in Greek is used to describe how the Holy Spirit moved as is used to describe the movement of the dove, or the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' own baptism. The prayer goes on to remind us that the children of Israel were led through the water of slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land, and so the concept of salvation is brought into the sacrament of baptism. Again, we're reminded of the important piece of Pauline theology when the prayer talks of being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism so that we might share in his resurrection. And at the end of the prayer, we say together the creed. And once that's finished, the candidate is asked to confirm that the Christian faith, as stated in the Nicene Creed, is in fact their faith. On the assumption that it is, the minister then pours water on them, calling them by name, saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That calling by name reminds us of Christ being the good shepherd and knowing his sheep by name and of God calling us, of God knowing us since he formed us, formed us, formed our inward parts and knitted us together in our mother's womb. It is as if God's been waiting all this time, waiting patiently for that moment when, we, when he can welcome us into his loving fold. At the end of the service, the newly baptized is handed a lit candle by the minister saying, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has given us a place with the saints in light. You have received the light of Christ walk in this light all the days of your life. This sacrament of Christian initiation or baptism 
which Jesus commanded his followers to practice wherever they went in the world, owes much to the Old Testament, to the baptism of John, and of course, to the baptism of Jesus. The Old Testament reminds us that God makes covenants. They are between his grace and our response. He takes the initiative and then we surrender our life to him in grateful allegiance. He gives us a physical mark of belonging to the covenant. Baptism has taken over from circumcision as the mark of that covenant. But the covenant itself, that covenant between us and God, remains unchanged. It is between God's grace and our, our response. The baptism of John reminds us that above all, that baptism is meant to bring us to repentance, to receive the forgiveness of sins. It points us forward to the cleansing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus would make possible. The baptism of Jesus, of course, takes it much further. It was in this sacrament that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. It was at his baptism that he perceived his position as son and his role as servant. Christian baptism includes all those things because above all else, it unites our lives with that of Jesus. And so we come to that tricky question, who should be baptized? It is clear in the New Testament that adult believers should be baptized when they came to faith in Christ and there's a strong case for doing that straight away. The New Testament churches had no disciple courses and no probationary period. They admitted candidates to baptism the moment they professed faith in Jesus as Lord. Like Abraham, they responded to the grace of God which is offered to them in the gospel and they received the mark of the covenant which binds them to Jesus. The question that we really need to tackle is whether we should allow baptism to the wider circle than just adult believers. Are children appropriate recipients of this sacrament? Small children can't repent or believe, therefore on what grounds can they be baptized? Nevertheless, the vast majority of churches do baptize children. The Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and the Anglican Church, including the Church of England, all baptize children. And I would suggest there are six considerations we, which have persuaded most churches to encourage infant baptism. Firstly, as we have seen, God makes covenants. They all spring from grace and they need to be grasped by human faith and obedience. God's covenant with Abraham was normative for the whole people of God. His adult response to the grace of God was sealed with circumcision, the mark of the covenant. But it didn't stop there. Isaac was born into the covenant community and also received the seal of circumcision long, long before he could make any response to God's grace. The circumcising of infants was an original and an essential part 
of the covenant that God had struck with Abraham. The covenant means that a child born into a believing home has the right to the mark of belonging, and so they could receive circumcision then, so why not baptism now? Secondly, when a family converted to Judaism from some pagan background, three things took place. The head of the family offered sacrifices, the males in the family were circumcised, and every single person was baptized, infants as well as adults. Thirdly, Lydia's complete household, the Philippian jailer's household, as we heard earlier today, Cornelius's household and Stephanus' household were all baptized. In the ancient world, when the head of the family acted, he did so for the whole family. Perhaps it's only the head of the family who expresses faith, but the whole family receives the mark of belonging, which, of course, today is baptism. In chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, which we heard a reference to earlier today as well, we see a story which clearly shows the attitude that Jesus had to children. It is probably the eve of the Day of Atonement, and on that evening, it was the custom for pious Jewish parents to bring their children to the scribes so that they could lay their hands on them, blessing and pray that they might one day attain knowledge of the law and good works. Some parents apparently came to Jesus seeking his blessing. The disciples told them to go away, and Jesus was indignant and the Greek word that Mark used here is extremely strong. Jesus was very angry. He loved small children and he welcomes them and he blames those who keep them away. Now, at first sight, this may seem to have nothing whatsoever to do with baptism. But from the beginning of the second century onwards, that portion of scripture was used extensively to justify infant baptism. Now, fifth, there is considerable evidence that baptizing infants was absolutely normal, and this normality had never, ever been challenged, even during the Reformation. It was norm so normal that when the Book of Common Prayer was published in, in 1549, there was absolutely no provision for adult baptism, as it was assumed that the whole of the country, what a thought this is really, that the whole of the country had already been baptized when they were infants. The liturgy for the baptism of those of riper years, lovely expression, was not introduced until 1662. All agree that the seal of the covenant between God's grace and Sorry, all agree that baptism is the seal on the, on the covenant between God's grace and our response. Should this sacrament be attached primarily to our response or to God's initiative? Is it God's doing or our doing? Surely baptism is the mark of God's prior love for us, which would predate our response and cause it forth. And therefore, the sacrament of baptism should be firmly attached to God's initiative 
And if that is the case, infant baptism is by its very nature, and it stresses by its very nature, the initiative of God in salvation. Baptism of an infant is undoubtedly and unquestionably freely given, as the child is unable to decide on the action, whereas with an adult, it is them that make the choice to which God responds. Anyway, let me finish with some closing words. We shall never, never fully understand the mystery of God's action for us, no matter how saintly or mature we become. We have been given something so profound, so deep, so important in baptism, that we can never, ever exist the wonder of its riches. As Christians, we are called to live out the dying and rising life of that baptism. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into the body of Christ, which is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of God. <laughs>